Today's word comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 41. If you can turn along to your Bibles, to Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 41, we'll read God's word for us today. Please give your careful attention. This is the word of the Lord. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You have made me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. There being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to me, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, and he has not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you. I think I poured all of myself out in that praise and worship. Um, but happy Father's Day. Uh, happy Father's Day. I know uh, some of you have uh, things in your Amazon uh, uh, cart that you're trying to buy for yourselves. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, as Deacon Peter prayed, uh, we have a good father. Uh, we have a perfect father. And we are about to hear about his character today and what he said to us, uh, what message should be throbbing in our hearts every day. So as we approach the word of God, uh, I hope that this message rings true in your heart. Uh, one of the greatest flaws of a pastor, um, well, talking about myself, one of my greatest flaws is to try to explain everything. I have an apologetical or a philosophical twist on everything, and I try to explain things. But uh, in essence, uh, the message of the gospel is meant to be proclaimed. proclaimed. And so as the word is proclaimed to you, may the words that need to stick to your heart, uh, Jesus will do that. So let's pray. Jesus, when your people are gathered we come with only one intentionality. Please be glorified. May Jesus alone receive all the attention and the spotlight. May his life, his death, his ministry and his resurrection and his exaltation be the central focus of our hearts today. We come with distracted and double-minded agendas but the message of God is a singularity that we need to listen to, respond to, and then in that message of the gospel that we would find all of our concerns, our hopes, our fears, our dreams addressed and fulfilled 
in that one message alone, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Lord, be with us. Holy Spirit, fill us, that we would listen to your message with the right heart and attitude. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, imagine your last breath in life. Um, and a second later, you open your eyes and you will stand before God. Some of you will go to heaven where you will see glory beyond glory, beauty of all beauties, and your heart will soar. And some of you will go to hell where God's specific and common grace will be stripped away from all creation and you will see horror upon horror of what the universe can be like without God's sustaining mercy. That keeps me awake at night. There is no overlap between these two realms. There is no neutral third location. There is no escaping this fact. The difference between which fate will be yours is not how well you lived, not how many people you loved or served, nor by how much wealth and power and influence you have accrued. There's only one thing that differentiates between these two realities. It's a message, a message. The message that God gave to the church, which is known as the euangelion, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if only everyone knew how urgent this message was. John MacArthur said, Satan continues his efforts to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific, and the gospel less urgent. His only ministry, Satan's only ministry, is to cause this to happen. By nature, a presentation of the message of the gospel is a fight upstream. It's the most exhausting, tiring, impossible thing to do in this world because you want everything that is said from this podium to be about you. How will this sermon benefit you? How will it break your addictions? How will these words make you feel like a moral success rather than a failure? How will this sermon bring peace between you and your spouse? How will Christianity make my children listen to me? And just like this, Satan conditions you to not think about anyone other than yourself. Preaching the gospel is like trying to sell uh, alien abduction insurance. Nobody is interested. Nobody is interested. So by nature, by worldly conditioning and the active strategic planning of Satan, you have no interest in the gospel because it is not about you. But here's the good news for us. It's a story about who God is and what he has done, and that has infinite ramifications for you. And that's why it's the good news. All the things that you desire to be about yourself, God has made it so by the revealing of who he is. And that's what blesses the church. It's to this kind of humanity that Peter offers the first apostolic sermon, the first sermon offered by an apostle after Jesus died, the first sermon after the coming of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. It's not hyperbole to say that everything in history, everything in history was building up to the proclamation of this one sermon. Everything is focused upon this one sermon. It's the most important thing that humanity can hear. And so formidable is this weapon, the message of the church, that it would launch the church onto a global stage within decades. What was this message? Why is it so crucial to us? Because it addresses the greatest philosophical, metaphysical tension in the universe. And that question is this the greatest mystery in the universe, how does a holy God coexist in the world, in this universe, with sinful human beings? 
the greatest tension in the universe. How does a holy God coexist with sinful human beings who have left him and self-isolated? Proverbs 17.15 presents the greatest paradox in this way. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the righteous, both are detestable to the Lord. Acquitting the guilty, we were guilty and we were acquitted. How is that good with God? And Jesus alone was righteous. We condemned him. How is that good with God? The biggest problem of the universe is this. It's a moral problem. And it's God's problem, not ours. We couldn't solve it. Ever since we sinned, our heart has become locked in so many layers of mystery. We want satisfaction, we want life, we want holistic healing, and we want deep relations, and none of this is accessible anymore because of the power of sin. Why is that? It's not that sin itself is powerful. It separates us from the most powerful and good person in the universe. That's why it's a problem. We were isolated from the God of life. Every human being struggles and moans because of their separation from the source of goodness. That's our problem. No matter which culture you go to, no matter which language you speak, everyone has a common issue that they'll talk about. They will talk about the need for forgiveness. No matter where you go, it's a universal impulse. People feel that they need to be forgiven of something. I don't know if you have ever tried to pick a lock. Uh, Let's look at the picture. This is the internal structure of a lock. Each of those tumblers, we call them tumblers, uh, need to click at place in a different location for the lock to open. So the combination of each uh, component needs to work all together. And that's when the key can turn. So why keys look so weird. Uh, It's hitting different components of the lock. The key to the locked human heart can only be opened by the gospel. There are specific elements within the gospel that we see in today's sermon that hits each and every component of our heart in a different way that frees us from sin and restores us to God and becomes the central way of how we live. What does it tell us? The message of the gospel tells us five crucial things that the human heart needs to hear and be affirmed of. What is it? Number one, we are beloved by God. Number two, we are enemies of God. Number three, our enmity has been resolved in the cross of Jesus Christ and we are free of our sins if we believe in him. Number four, God will bring perfection and judgment to this universe. And number five, God wants us to respond today. That is a message that all of us need to hear whether you know it or not. This might sound like alien abduction insurance to you because you have no need for this. And you came here for a seven-step program to better yourself. But this is the message you've been looking for. So what is the message of the church? We'll start with the first element. Peter looks at the life of Jesus, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. And it's easily applicable today. KCPC, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, is the evidential basis of Jesus living amongst us. Jesus was attested to. What does that mean? Jesus is attested to. It means that the coming of Jesus had a context. He wasn't plopped into human history for people to guess about why he was here. God told people what he would do. God did it. And God told people what he did. Do you get that? That's the element of any good storytelling. I tell you what I'm going to do. I do it. And then I tell you what I did. It's the best way of retaining information. God promised a Savior. He sent a Savior. And he testifies about the Savior. Before Christ, what was the context that Jesus came into? God publicly revealed to covenant bearers critical information about himself. 
how he will personally be amongst his people, Emmanuel. He will be a shepherd, and yet he will be a king. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He will, be, he will perform mighty miracles and turn the hearts of Israel to him. He will be killed like a criminal, and he will be resurrected and exalted. These are crucial pieces of the evidence that God gave to covenant bearers, Moses and Abraham and David, and the new covenant bearers. All of these people heard about what the character of God would be like amongst our midst. Then, in that context, God sent Jesus. He was attested not just as a mere man, nor a teacher, nor a moral guru. He was accompanied by works and wonders and signs. Things that Sadducees and Pharisees couldn't have just denied They were so threatened because it actually happened, these works and miracles, that they accused Jesus of magic and demon possession, but they had no way of explaining his miracles. Jesus performed miracles in his ministry. And they had, this is my apologetic side coming out again, but I'll dive into this. They had no way of fabricating this. Jesus, after resurrection, worked and showed himself to the world for 40 days. And this is Pentecost, 50 days after when Jesus died. So this is a 10-day gap. And these people are eyewitnesses talking to a group of people who saw the signs and wonders and yet killed Jesus. 10 days. I mean, I respond to emails in later than 10 days. These people have seen the resurrected Jesus and they're trying to figure out what the context is. And Peter's going back to Psalm. 16, and he's talking about what Jesus would be like, who he, what he would do, what his identity is, and what they attest to. KCPC, don't strip Jesus away from the context. A lot of the sins of the modern world is this, that we take Jesus, the, t- the name of Jesus, and we turn him into a moral teacher. He's a person who created the Republican Party, or he, you know, is all about social justice. He only confirms what I believe. And we take away the covenant context of why Jesus came, why God would, would make this essential message of all humanity. This would solve everything. Who is Jesus to you? A daily helper, an organizer, a stress reliever. Jesus is the Lord of Lords the king of kings who came in a context that God planned to save us. And the first thing that the human heart needs to know is this. God orchestrated all of the universe and the events in scripture for you. Ah, That doesn't blow your mind away. A lot of uh, young adults have recently proposed to uh, their fiancé now. And they talk about how nerve-wracking it is. It is an adrenaline-filled rush. They have to find the perfect location, the, uh, the, the, the mood, the music, the conversation, the surprise people around them in some cases, and uh, the ring. Everything has to be for that one message of saying, I love you, will you marry me? I wonder if you see how God orchestrated history where he laid out a world for us to live in and then he says, flourish and thrive in it. And the first second that we sinned, he, he launched into history a redemption program. How to get us back into the kingdom of God with, that, with dealing with sin and yet bringing us back in through mercy. And so covenants, my son will die for you. My son will die for you. My son will die for you. I love you so much. I love you so much. I love you so much. And all of this is orchestrated. When Jesus came, he was the diamond ring placed on our finger. That God loves you. The greatest bitterness in my life, and I've practiced being bitter a lot. (laughs) The bitterness from my life usually comes when I forget that God loves me. 
when I forget that all of this is a demonstration of, of how God loved me so much that God prepared it in Revelation that says, before the foundation of the world, he sent his son to die for us. A lot of young youth kids ask me this, and this breaks my heart. They ask me, if God set the universe in motion, why can't he just leave us alone? It's like fiancé saying, if, if you gave me a diamond ring, just leave me alone now. It's terrible to hear in that way. But emotionally and psychologically, that's how our children are responding to God. They hate him. They hate being ordered around. And because we live in an age of self-expressivism, individualism, we hate being told that anyone has a plan for me, that anyone loved me so much that they would actually die for me. It's 부담스러워. Sorry for this conglish. That's other religions. Most gods tend to float above human existence, not soiled by us, and they don't want to get involved with human affairs. They're either on Mount Olympus or they're in a separate realm because existence is messy and painful and brutal. But God, this biblical God, in the context that he sends in Christ, puts on flesh, jumps into the context of our suffering, and takes the most, the, the force of the blow upon us. He takes upon the cross and the sin that we caused. This is a God who cares. And he joins us in our suffering. The last thing that you can say about this God is that he is far away. God cares for you. Can you actually believe that about yourself? Like, I have a hard time accepting that God loves me after a week or two of living, after a day or two of breathing, I understand God can't love me. I forgot who said it this way. Was it Francis Chan? Or, you know, I gave a million reasons for God to hate me. None of it worked. None of it worked. God loves you. And all of this is a context to tell you that. When an orphan hears Daddy loves you for the first time by an adopted father. They don't believe it. But it seeps in through time, experience, parental demonstrations of love. And I hope that you're backtracking throughout the past week to think of how God has shown you how he loves you. You need to hear that for the first piece of that lock to be hit in the right way. God loves you. You're not a mistake. You're not random. There was a plan and a context, justice for Jesus, for you as well. Number two, the death of Jesus. We just talked about the life of Jesus and how it's attested. Now we're talking about the death of Jesus. Verses 23 and 26. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The next element of the gospel that we need to hear for the lock to turn is that I killed Jesus. Not that I did sins X, Y, and Z. No. That I wholeheartedly reject God and hate God. And I have, I have nothing that I want to do with God. And if this God shows up, this is actually based on a sign that I saw in a demonstration, an atheist demonstration. It says, if God shows up, we'll kill him again. That's what the sign said. That is consistent human nature. This Christ was the hope of all Israel to save them and the world and the word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Anointed one. There's only three types of people who are anointed by oil. Kings, prophets, and priests. In other words, Peter was saying, you killed your king to whom you owed your allegiance. You killed the prophet who speaks the word of God in will into your life. 
You killed the priest who makes peace between God and man. And the message we have says that we personally hate the very idea of God, his sovereignty, authority over my life, the way that he connects me to, me to God. I hate that. Why is this a weapon of the church today? Because we live in an age where we try to hide behind corporate sin and not personal sin. We do not own personal moral liability anymore, but we hide behind group identities. That ethnicity is a perpetrator. That age group destroyed the planet. The capitalists are the problems. The Marxists are the problems. It's the evangelicals who are hypocrites. It's the liberals who are destroying the foundations of our morality. No, you killed Christ personally. There is no safe place from this. Stop trying to hide that you yourself are not responsible for what we have contributed to humanity. And it's only when humanity hears that message, they will stop trying to categorize the world into different compartments and say, I am the problem. Lord, have mercy upon a sinner like me. Not my people group, not my lineage, not my economic background, not my religion. Lord, have mercy upon me. I killed my Lord and Savior. And I do so every day. That's the second piece of the puzzle that we're missing. No one owes up to their moral downfall. But verse 23 says that this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Of course, this does not reduce my culpability. You killed by the hands of lawless men. What he's implying is that there is that you're either guilty of, uh, as an accessory or you're guilty personally. So either way, you're still guilty. And yet, and yet, God had a plan for this. It means that there was a purpose for the death of Jesus Christ. There was a purpose behind that narrative. And what is that purpose? The forgiveness of our sins. The forgiveness of our sins. There's the answer that we've been looking for. How can a holy, just, and loving God coexist in a loving relationship, not just ignoring us, but loving us and holding on to us? How can that happen in this universe? If a judge ignores a crime, we call that, what, corruption. If a holy and just God sees us and just says, it's okay, it's okay, it's corruption and incompatible with his nature, how does God do, this, do so? It's called the propitiation of sin, the satisfaction of the wrath of God fully upon Jesus when Jesus died for us, he became the essence of sin. Notice his language changed. Ever since his ministry, God, Jesus called God Abba, Father. And only upon the cross, he calls him Elohim, God, God, God. The relationship has been severed, and he is being judged as a sinner, as the essence of all sin. Why is that so? That my sin would die upon the cross as well. That your sin would die upon the cross as well, your hatred and animosity towards Jesus would be killed by his death once and for all. And once again, this has a context. The Passover lamb offered every single year for every annual sin, every yearly sin, every daily sin that you commit. The once and for all offering of Jesus Christ was enough to forgive you forever. Forever. God had a plan. Every youth struggling with self-worth needs to hear this, that God loved you so much that he died for you. Every young adult who thinks that he knows everything and judges everyone but himself in his pride needs to hear this message. You are so bad that God died for you. And yet you are so loved that God died for you. 
every adult hardened in his ways needs to hear this. You are guilty of the greatest crime in the universe, but you are loved beyond that. How can that be? You need to hear, you need to hear Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a word that we need to hear. The lock to turn. That's the message of the church, that we are individually sinners. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 24 to 28, but beyond this, all, all of today's sermon is cram-packed like a sandwich. You have bread on the outside, you have lettuce on the inside and tomatoes, but the piece uh, that's central is the meat. At least I think so. Some of you might be the lettuce. God have mercy on you. <laughs> but just like this, the structure of this whole sermon is trying to say Jesus was resurrected. You didn't kill a mere mortal so that you didn't have forgiveness of sins. You killed God according to his plan that when he arose, death would be overcome and freedom from sin and slavery to your impulses would arise by the power of God himself breaking forth from sin and evil and death. And that is a liberation that all of us need today. That you are free All of us come in here with thousands of pounds of weight on our shoulders. How do I make life work? How do I escape the pressures of my moral conscience bearing down on me? How do I escape that guilt that I have because of that one conversation? I mean, you heard the rawness in Deacon Peter's voice that we said things that we can't pick up again. And the older you grow, you know how valuable a pure conscience is. Christ's resurrection shows you that you are free from all of that. From all that you pick up to stone yourself with, God has made you free. Satan, Shatan, the accuser, the, the adversary, when he opposes you and God by pointing to your sins, as we saying, we have a strong and perfect plea before God the Father. That Jesus died for us and was raised for us, showing that there is no outstanding balance anymore. There's nothing to pay back. A lot of you have student loans, different kinds of loans, mortgages. Once it's paid back, everything that you accrue is for what? Is for sheer pleasure, for enjoyment when you recognize that the moral balance sheet has been wiped away clean and you are free now, all that you do is a joyful expression of the freedom that you now have. You're not trying to earn anything, and that kills legalism, and that also kills antinomianism. That kills the sense that you have to earn your way to God, and it kills the sense that you owe nothing to God. You belong to him in freedom, and nothing else in the world has a grasp onto you. Your jobs can't control you. Your paycheck shouldn't define who you are. Like, I'm still going around and introducing myself, and the first word that always comes out of people's, people's mouths still is, hi, I'm an engineer. Hi, I'm a computer software like, designer. I'm like, no, you're a child of God first. Like, the freedom defines you first. Then you do work out of a hobby set, my, mindset. Like, vacation, vocation becomes vacation, and vacation also becomes vocation. Because all that you do comes from the freedom of having no, no debt. A third piece of the puzzle that humanity struggles with is what lies beyond death. Buddha says reincarnation awaits, but he wasn't so sure of it with his dying words. I'm not so sure. Atheism says that this life is all we have, so enjoy it while you can. Do you know that only 1% of the world can actually do that? 
Like, try telling a starving child in Somalia, enjoy your life while you can. That is the most privileged statement in the world. Atheism or Buddhism or Islam, they cannot present a universally beneficial, benevolent ending for all of humanity. Only the resurrection does, which escapes the pains of sin and death and points us towards a new direction. Only the resurrection that Christianity has shown, demonstrated, and yet has not been debunked. Luke 26, 24, 20, 46 to 47. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in, the na- in his name to all nations, that everyone who believes in Jesus would be saved beyond death. We make too much of this life. And that's the puzzle that we have to solve. We make too much of this life. There's so many stillborn children. There's so many kids who are killed in Africa right now. What if they don't have the luxury of the life that we are now living? Where is the universal fairness in all of this? Only the resurrection explains. Only the resurrection heals the broken heart who's lost a loved one in their early stages of life. That's one piece of the puzzle, explaining what lies beyond the grave. The gospel turns the grave into a cradle. The gospel turns the tomb into a womb. It's a new start in Christ. Fourth, exaltation of Jesus. Verses 32 to 35. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Once again, these are, this is 10 days after Jesus was exalted. Now, Peter goes further to claim in verse 32 that we are all witnesses. Uh, once again, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover, and Jesus was, was in his earthly ministry in his resurrected body for 40 days. So 10 days after, he first appears to Peter, and then the 12, and to 500 people all at one time, then to James, and to the apostles, then to Paul through a vision. And basically everyone is saying, we saw this Jesus resurrected, and he was what? The biblical wording says ascension. But a more accurate definition is exaltation. All of humanity saw that Jesus was lifted into the air physically. I mean, why didn't Jesus step out of the tomb, uh, you know, show people his body and just go snap and disappear? Why was he risen? The ascension, why is that so important? Because he's showing that God vindicated his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, God vindicated all of it. Vindication means that it it means to prove that you were right. In other words, the ascension of Jesus Christ is basically telling the world that my son, Jesus, his ministry, his life, the words that he said, the, the way that he died upon the cross even was correct. That it was the way that it should have been. And what he said is true, that there is forgiveness of sins, remission of sins. When you believe in this Jesus that I adore, that God adores is proving that he was right. And this is a huge piece of the puzzle. All of us are waiting for vindication. Despite our sin, despite our lostness and our blindness, we are somehow seeking vindication to hear from God that our lives were meaningful, that there was a purpose to this short existence. And only when you are in Jesus, when you join him in his death and the cross and the resurrection and you are ascended and and, and glorified with him, that the universe will show that it was right of you to place your faith in Jesus. When the whole world tells you that it's stupidity, that you're going against logic and science and evidentialism, God will one day lift you up from the grave and tell you this was the correct choice. It was inevitable that this son of mine, this daughter of mine, believed in Christ and would be raised again. And the faith had a strong foundation. At the end of human history, it's not going to be an economic revolution that makes all things right, nor a technological revolution, nor a moralistic revolution, or a 
ethnic revolution, there will be a spiritual revolution that makes everyone who is in Christ right with God. And from that, there will be physical, economical, mental, social, ethic, harmony, and perfection. Perfection will come. Perfection will come. If any of you have seen one of our family members suffering from cancer or passed away due to COVID, you need to hear the words, perfection will come. Just as Jesus ascended and was glorified and his life was vindicated, your life, if it is in Christ, all the illnesses, all the pains and sufferings that you went through will be vindicated before one God and he will wipe away every single tear that you have and there will be perfection. And our heart, heart aches and throbs for that day to come one day that this fleshly body would be tossed aside and I would be one with the Lord in perfection. Or I could go to the, t- the highest buildings in Virginia. It's not too high here, but I would go to the highest buildings in Virginia and be able to shout out my deepest secrets and not be ashamed of myself. That day is coming. That day is coming, and that is one, the, one of the final pieces of the puzzle that opens a human heart to receive the message of God. So far, this was the gospel. Jesus was born and lived in a supernatural way that pointed to God's promise. Jesus suffered and died according to Scripture as God promised, soaking in the wrath and justice of God on our behalf and completing it by saying, it is finished, tetelestai, And then Jesus was resurrected, freeing us from sin and death. Now Jesus is exalted, vindicating all in front of his enemies. And from his exalted state, he sends us the Holy Spirit to do that process in us now. How do we respond? Verse 37 says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of his apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Cut to the heart, and then they would say, Brothers, what do we now do? All that we have believed in, all that we staked our lives upon, all the moral laws of Judaism that we thought we were keeping in our integrity, we demonstrated was false when we killed the Messiah. What shall we do? And that is a conclusion that all of us have to reach. Your systems are not working. Your daily programs of self-betterment are not working. And you've done the opposite. You killed the Christ of, of God. What shall we do? This is the appropriate response to the gospel. The gospel causes crisis. It either offends people or it cuts them into hopelessness to sweetly rely upon Jesus for their salvation. That's the weapon of the church. George Whitfield, after proclaiming the gospel, he said this, I was honored today with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of, uh, pieces of a dead cat thrown at me because he preached the gospel. That is a legitimate response to the good news of Jesus Christ that tells us that we are evil. And what's so frustrating week to week is that no one's throwing rocks but then neither are, is there any repentance. There's, there's no radicalized, polarized response to this message that slays the heart and revitalizes it, regenerates it in Christ. And so either we should be picking up stones because we're so offended at what we've heard, or we get down on our knees and we proclaim Jesus as Savior. What are we going to do with this message? When you go home, when you talk to your friends and they just say, oh, that's good advice. That's a good manual to live. Gospel is good news. What God has done for you, proclaimed and done and completed, executed, finished. There's no response here but to accept that news. When the gospel cuts to your heart, it pierces deep inside like a double-edged sword. And it dissects all of the impulses of your heart because we know that we don't honor or love God, but yet it is made possible through Jesus Christ. That's when we are restored. The word cut here 
if you read it in the Greek Septuagint, the, uh, the same Greek word for cut in this passage is the same word for Deuteronomy. And basically it means circumcision. Deuteronomy 36, the Lord your God will circumcise or cut your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. KCPC, I want you to live. How do you live? Your heart, your heart of stone must be cut, circumcised, so that it's finally able to see God and love God and enjoy him forever. The only way to, is to hear the message of the gospel that Jesus loved you, died for you, and now restores you perfectly. Final verses 38 through 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. KCPC, repent and be baptized. Now, this is where a lot of you are thinking of how to apply this because a lot of you have repented and you have been baptized. And I'm trying to correct a common thought that goes along our lives. A lot of us think that when we start from the cross, our Christian faith starts from the cross and our life is uh, spent walking in further accomplishment beyond the cross. So the cross, if I believe 40 years ago, is 40 years behind me and I'm continuing into sanctification and glorification. That's not it. The journey of a Christian is to carry the cross from start to finish. Every day, you must go back to the cross. Every day, you have to see what killed my Savior and why that is enough for me. Do you get that? Like, every single, like, you know, I, I, I've lived life in so many different ways. I've tried so many different ways to make my life better. I've tried ministry so many different ways. I've tried strategies and I've tried programs and systems. You know what? None of it works. And the only thing that ever works in life and ministry is this. When I go to the cross and I see how broken I am and I see God's sufficiency smother, smother my guilt, I see God's love smother and cover all my downfalls. And God looks at my eyes and says, my grace is enough for you. I gave you my son. I love you. You are restored. Any sweetness that comes out from me, any patience that comes from me, is from seeing the cross once again. Every morning if I don't go to the cross, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I'm doomed. And the same must be for you. How do you live as a Christian forever? Like, if you're not going to be, you know, if you're not going to repent and be baptized today, how do we live? Carry the cross every single day and see what the message of God did to your own heart every single day. God needs to have mercy on you every morning. You need to receive the love of God every morning. Like, let God love you. Like, you're so busy, you won't let God love you. And when that cross is carried day by day, what needs to happen in your life will happen. Sanctification, check. Love of neighbors, check. Evangelism, missions, check. The cross is a daily empowerment that allows that to happen. That is the power of the message of the church. The world is waiting for this message to be shared that God loves you, that you are a sinner, that you need reconciliation unto God who has all of history designed for that one moment for you to confess, Lord, I give myself up to you. Do what you will. The gospel is God's story. The message of the church is is Christ himself. Why is his life and death so important? It's like looking for one AIDS survivor. 
to see if his blood might contain the answer to hundreds of thousands of deaths per year by AIDS and HIV. Or it's like looking at a miraculous cancer survivor and trying to see what's within that DNA that might cure cancer. And what we see in the message of the church, people who have survived themselves, people who have survived the wrath of God, people who have survived from their own fallenness, people look to you to see what the message is, what the hope is, and it is only Jesus Christ in you. That's what the world is looking for. How can a loving, just, and holy, and good God overlook my sin? I pray that your heart will be pierced today. I pray that you're asking, what shall I do? How shall I now live knowing the story of God? And we will conclude by reading the verse today, verse 21. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved daily, daily. And so, praise him as you come up. Let's call upon the Lord. Uh, he is our only hope right now and forevermore. You didn't need the cross 20 years ago. You need it right now. And so at this time, let's call upon the name of the Lord to yourselves. Just call upon Jesus. Thank him for his life, his death, his ministry, his resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And when the church is equipped with this message, we become the only hope of all humanity. This is not hyperbole. When this message is internalized, you become the hope of all eternity because in your lips, the gospel will be proclaimed. Let's take about 30 seconds to just pray. Respond. I hope you're cut to the heart. I hope you understand what Jesus has done for you. I hope that name is more beautiful than yesterday. Let's pray.